all you writers who read, I'm Gary McBride, and I'm joined by Whitney Pinion and Mira Landry. Now, we've all been told that to become better writers, we need to be better readers, but no one says how. Well, this podcast is all about how. By reading and analyzing a new novel published within the past two years, our discussions focus on the underlying techniques, how the author used them, and why. We don't criticize, we don't judge, we study and dig in, and what we seek is what we can apply to our own writing. We are Writers Who Read. This is Episode 1, recorded on November 5, 2023. Today's novel is Avalon by Nell Zink, published in May of 2022. My name is Gary McBride, and with me are Whitney Pinion. And Mira Landry. <laughs> and we're here to talk about Avalon by Nell Zink, published by Knopf, Alfred Knopf. It is a Borzoi book. I'm like, I should be fact checking before I come to these things now. I have all these like <laughs> notes. And I'm like, maybe I should be looking these things up. Well, you did. You did a pretty good job of looking up the cover. That's OK. That's actually in the book. Like, do you have the paperback? If you open it up. No. It's oh, on the inside. What's a, what's a paperback? I'm totally ebook. <laughs> if you have it in actual, I mean, it is on the Kindle as well. I mean, I read it on the Kindle. If you just go to the copyright page, oh, the copyright like in the page. very beginning, it mm-hmm. says cover illustration based on a sketch by the author, cover designed by Linda Huang. Hmm. Do you want to hear the ice clinking next oh, to the microphone? Hello. Hello. <laughs> That's why, the, that's why the ice is in the rocks glass. Welcome to the inaugural Writers Who Read podcast. Thank you, Whitney. I couldn't mm. have said it better. Mm-hmm. We are Writers Who Read, and we are based in Boulder, Colorado. We've been doing this for over five years. Let's call it six seasons now. Uh, we're into our 54th book, which is Avalon by Nell Zink. I'll say this about Writers Who Read and how it's different from your average book club, is that book clubs and writers who read, we assess who we are in relationship to the book, which is important. To be able to contextualize the literature and to to understand how it relates to who we are and our lives, which is important. What we also do, which is the same, is that we count our feelings as being very important because how we are impacted by the book emotionally is a really good indication of something in the writing. I like to say X marks the spot. If, if something affects you positively or negatively, strongly, that's a really good place to dig. And then where we diverge from a book club is that, like so sometimes happens with some of the people in the group, is that they are reminded of something from their own lives or a person they know or an experience they had or they want to relate it to another topic and the conversation goes off the rails because it's no longer about the book. It's now about me, right? Mm. And so we're here to study books. We're here to get underneath the cover of the plot, underneath the cover of the words, the sentences, and get to the core of what is actually being said, what does the writer mean, and how are they doing it? How are they accomplishing that task? And every word matters, every sentence matters, every phrase matters. Every character matters. Every situation matters. Every juxtaposition. You know, it's no mistake if there's a dog named Rabelais, mm. right? I mean, that's that's put there by the author. And it's intentional. And we can't let that just slide by. We have to look at it and examine it. And that's often what I, when people ask, 
what writers who read is, you know, why I go to it more than and why I don't call we don't call it a book club. As I always say, it doesn't really matter if you don't like it. Like people come in and they get really passionate about the fact that, you know, they didn't enjoy the story. And I just think that's beyond the point. You know, what why did the author do what they did? And did they serve their purpose? You know, it's it's sometimes I think it's like someone who only reads literature coming in and, you know, reading a commercial romance and then being like, Well, you know, it was a terrible book. Well, it, it's not a terrible book. You just don't like commercial romance. That's fine. But as far as commercial romance goes, Emily Henry hits all the points. You can say you don't like reading commercial romance, but you can't say Emily Henry is a bad author. She writes amazing commercial romance. You know, and if we're going to sit here and analyze a book, according, like if we were have an Emily Henry against a Cormac McCarthy, they're completely different books. We're going to be looking at them completely different lenses. Mm-hmm. But a Cormac McCarthy book, we're going to be analyzing under... You know, what did he do to achieve what he set out with his art versus what Emily Henry did to like did to set out to achieve what she wanted to with her art to appeal to a certain audience. And I think underlying all of this is how can we apply some of these techniques of the writers that we read to our own craft? I think that's why you started this group, right? Exactly. Yeah. We only do books that have been published within the last 18 months. And I think that's important to be reading recent novels if you want to publish your book in 2024. We don't study Moby Dick. We don't study To Kill a Mockingbird. We don't study uh, any of the classics because, frankly, books have changed dramatically over the last 20 years. And thematically and content-wise, extremely over the last five years. If you think about the rise of fascism, if you think about COVID, if you think about the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, all these things that are in the public zeitgeist that authors do need to think about because if you're writing, you're you're writing to a modern audience. I, would, I was going to add to that, that writers who are looking to find an agent and find a publisher, like when you give comp titles, they have to be recent, like within the last three to five years. So we're also appealing to that audience. When I do my workshop my four-hour workshop on the whole literary forensic soup to nuts, I like to talk about the way that a novelist puts a story together versus the way that a reader consumes it. So if you think about the way a writer thinks, like Nell Zink, for example, she obviously had a goal. She stated that she believes this book is kind of an autofiction and that she took 20 years to pour over it because there's a core truth to her life that's kind of buried in this book. Any writer has to have a strong feeling like that to want to put in the hundreds of hours of work to put a book together. You've got to have something at the core that just drives you. That's the fire in your belly. Then out of that come characters and out of that come scenes. And then you have enough of these scenes and you kind of can sense where the story's going. Then you have plot. If you're outline driven, the plot might come sooner, but certainly the characters come First, you have to imagine people in the situation doing this thing. But then as a reader, when we consume a book, we're looking at it from the outside in. We're looking at the plot and maybe understanding what characters are up to and how the characters move in this space. And oftentimes we never even get to, well, why did the author write this in the first place? Which is the core reason that the writer writes. And, it, and if we can't get back to that, then I don't think we've dug deep enough. And I hope I've said enough about writers who read. Yeah. And so much <laughs> of this is exploratory, right? Like we don't really know the 
exact process that the author went through. So we're just looking at it from an analytical perspective of what goes into making a story and the structure and story forms that go into that and the motivations of characters and whether or not the author even used all of these story theory parts and bits and pieces and, you know, are our theme analysis even correct? Like we're exploring based on how we see it as a reader, writers who read. (laughs) But at the end of the day, I don't think it matters if we get it right because we're not literary critics. Mm. So we're not trying to judge the book as an entity and place it against all other books in the history of literature. If we find a nugget or two nuggets of insight as to how an author created what they created, we've won. And so it's a little bit random. It's a little bit serendipitous, I think, the way that we can pull information out. But we have to be looking. You know, no no prospector is going to find gold if they don't look for gold. Right. Right. And so if you don't look for technique, if you don't look for how the writer is trying to do it, if you're reading passively, if you're reading like people watch TV, which is just kind of to vegetate or to take your mind off something. Oh, I this wish. is not the group for you. <laughs> this is, this, is, not, this the group. is not the group for you. This is not for you. I think of it as like a book is like a tapestry, right? And that's mm. the, the front of it. And what we do is flip it over on its backside and we see how that tapestry is put together. Beautiful. So we'll first start with what do we bring to the book? And when I say what we bring to the book, what I'm really meaning is Uh, We're all biased readers. We all have certain tastes. We all have certain styles, genres that we like to read. And there is baggage that we bring. We've lived our lives. We're human beings. We are real people. We are not fictional characters. (laughs) And we need to think about that when we consider how we're going to put any book that we read through the prism of critique or analysis or studying to, you know, read, read like a writer. And so I'll start first with what I bring to the book. I have read three of Nell Zink's books now, uh, novels. Uh, I was really impressed with Miss Laid, which was her second novel. And then I went on to read Doxology and also liked it and wanted to put it on this list, but kept reading the books too late to have been, (laughs) to have gotten put on the list. Uh, I really love her writing and... I brought this book to the group, so I was hoping that it would be good fodder for conversation. Hmm. So what do you bring? So I think what I said earlier, I bring to this book a love of California, having lived there, having honeymooned in the place where this character, can we say this? Can we give spoilers like in the get-go? Yeah, go for it. This place where, this kind of mystical place where the protagonist has her kind of a spiritual experience. You took your honeymoon? Yeah. To Catalina Island? Well, that was Derek's 50th birthday. We did Catalina Island for like just two summers ago, but Point Lobos. So so when we got married, we were already living in the Bay Area. We got married on the East Coast because that's where we met. We got married in D.C. And then we flew home for our honeymoon. So we drove down to Monterey and Carmel and we stayed in Pacific Grove and we went to Point Lobos. It's like, this looks interesting. Let's go for a hike here. Wow. It was magical. It was ex- pretty much exactly as she described. It was it was um, mama otters with their babies on their bellies floating mm. in the bay. Oh. It was cy- windblown cypress trees and the ocean. And I'm like, do we ever have to leave this place? Uh. So, and also 
Southern California, which is a different state from Northern California, which is, as she alluded to, kind of lawless in some places, kind of superficial in other places. Um, anyway, so I bring a love of California, a knowledge of California to this book and appreciated all the places that she sprinkled into the narrative. So have you read Nell Zink before? I have all? not read Nell Zink ah. before. I think I said this in the meeting. I found her language a little confusing at times. I think mm. she could have used an editor to kind of <laughs> clarify some muddy sentences, um, clean some things up for her that were kind of, yeah, a little oblique. Um, but yeah, and I don't even know who she reminds me of that I've read before. And I honestly don't know if I, I might try, I might give her another try, but this was, <laughs> I have to say, try usually, usually you and I have the same taste in books and this yeah. one was not one really? of my, this one was not one of my favorites. Wow. What a great place mm -hmm. to start a podcast series. Mm. On a disagreement. Disagreements. Cause we're usually in agreement, but this by the one, way, I love disagreements when they come up in the, I group, know. And I'm I? like, I got to disagree with Gary at some point. Those are the people that <laughs> somebody has to be somebody. The, yeah. And I couldn't believe, I thought I'm going to show up and there'd be a lot of people unhappy with this book. I was actually surprised how many people like this book. Wow. I don't feel like I feel like everybody was pretty well behaved today. Nobody was really <laughs> doing the whole I, you know, everybody I seemed protest. reserved with their opinions. They were actually really I mean, I always notice this cuz I get annoyed when people kind of go on and on about whether or not they liked it and how they actually felt instead of sticking to the literature. Huh. And I felt like everybody was really well behaved today and yeah. stuck to the literature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which made makes me happy. Oh, mm -hmm. made me really happy. <laughs> Yeah, because how are we not like a book club? We don't care how you feel. We don't care how you feel about the book. <laughs> we don't care how you feel about the book. <laughs> so uh, what do you bring to the book, Mira? Oh, <laughs> um, I have never read a Nell Zink book before. So was I hadn't heard of this book, didn't see it on a buzz list, um, and wasn't going to read it, actually. Uh, we talked about this. It was not on my list. I twisted I was gonna, her arm. I was yes. going to skip this book. Um <laughs> Mostly for those reasons, I didn't know Nell Zink and I hadn't heard of the book. And I was really excited about the next one and that we have coming up, if you haven't heard of it. Trust by yeah. Hernan Diaz. Mm. <laughs> nice. So not having read it, I, I started reading on my Kindle and I always read manuscripts on my Kindle. I, I should mention, I work for a literary agency, so I do evaluate manuscripts and queries that come in. And I always read those on my Kindle. And I normally don't read actual books on my Kindle. I try and read them in paperback or hardback just because that's my preferred form. Anyway, reading it, I, can't, I found myself trying to edit this book. And so I guess I come at this from a, an agent aspect looking at this. And I also come at it from a writer who has tried to write a stuck character before, which is Bran in the book. And I think that's she did, I, Nell Zink did a fabulous job writing a stuck character, in my opinion. And I also, uh, I grew up quite poor. No, I wouldn't say abject poverty. Definitely did not grow up in the situation that Bran did in the book. But the experiences that she has as feeling as an outsider in the book, I found super relatable. So that's what I bring. When, when you say stuck character, can mm -hmm. you just give more detail Elaborate. on what that means? Yeah. yeah, so in classic storytelling most writers who have studied any kind of story theory know that from page one, your character needs to have a goal. And that's often what makes a reader want to stick with the character. Maybe it's that they want something, maybe they're trying to get away from something, but there needs to be something that they want in order to create some momentum. And so the difficulty in writing a stuck character is they often don't believe they're capable of anything. Maybe they don't want anything. 
you know, and it's just, it's very static and you can't have a static protagonist and then push them along. But the thing with the appealing nature of a stuck character is that as a, you should want to root for them. You don't want someone to stay stuck, but to put that on a page is really difficult. And I think Zink did a great job of using uh, alternate literary techniques to make the reader stay connected to the book and want to see what happened in the story to get Brand through that stuck section of the book. Well, one of the things that Zink did is she put the end of the story on page one. Mm-hmm. And without context, so you know there's a person named Peter, you know there's a person named Bran, you don't really understand their relationship, Bran falls down a hill, I'm not giving anything away, this is on page one, but you don't know why, and you don't understand the significance, the context, it's, it's a little bit confusing. But you do know that they're in a relationship, a forbidden relationship that they couldn't be in, and suddenly at this end of the book, you, they can be together. And so the story is about figuring out how they got to that point, or you think, but it's not really. And so it does propel you through a lot of exposition, (laughs) a lot of backstory about her mother dying of cancer and abandoning Bran uh, by going to live in a a monastery as a nun, a Buddhist monastery, and... uh, Brand's horrible situation living with now because her father has run off to Australia and her mother has abandoned her uh, to her ex-husband. Common-law uh, stepfather. Her common-law stepfather. Her common-law stepfather. <laughs> and then his son, his father, Grandpa Larry, I guess. This just horrible, horrible cast of characters who run an illegal nursery, which is actually owned by the state. So... God knows how this can even exist. I mean, they don't actually own the land. They don't own the business, but they do run drugs, I guess. And there's a biker gang that that's their home base. And there's there are illegal activities going on. There is crime happening. And the nursery seems to be a front. And Bran is their slave laborer. Uh, she's been working since she was five. And her... She has no family and nowhere to go and no power. And so, like you say, she is a stuck protagonist. And she stays stuck. She stays stuck until probably past the 50% mark in the story. She doesn't believe she's capable of achieving anything, you know, even though there's interesting things happening in her life and she's meeting people. She herself has not moved place or position or even dreams of it. As with many family businesses, the key to the enterprise's viability is unpaid labor by women, children, and recent immigrants in need of a place to lie down. It was, high, it was one of the more highlighted texts in the book. And she says, I was never considered a member of the family unless they wanted something from me. Which is the sentence before the passage that you just read. See, this is like why I'm not a pantser in novels. I need an outline. <laughs> <laughs> And why don't we talk about that? I mean, do we think she's a pantser or a plotter? This came up in your meeting. Well, I have my theory. <laughs> well, when you do the analysis of the length of each chapter, when, when you do, you find 12 pretty much evenly sized chapters. The midway point of the book comes pretty much exactly at the end of chapter six, and it's split into thirds and quarters based on the exact division of the number 12 right so i feel like she wrote to an outline i definitely agree according to scene structure even uh there's this sort of palindromic sense from the beginning to the end 
Do I can really use hand gestures? We can totally see, see all my hand gestures. So she's yes. waving her arm. <laughs> there is there is symmetry. There is symmetry. There, there is. is a repetition of scenes in the first half of the book as there is in the second mm-hmm. half of Which the book. Which is classic hero's journey. Right. And something that a novelist like Nell Zink would probably know. But one of the things I thought was interesting, knowing that this is autofiction and she based it on that, this is also what ghost writers often use, is they listen to someone's story and then they like formulate it into a structure similar to hero's journey so that they can, you know, give the classic story arc and that make it a successful memoir or biography. Yeah. And the, the ways that she palindromic, did you say, what were you saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, there's, there there's the, some, there's symmetry. There is symmetry because there, there's the bookend. So the, the very end of the book is actually the first five paragraphs of the book uh, which you need to read once you've finished the end of chapter 12, which is the last chapter in the book. You can go back to the beginning of the book. And there is this kind of, not an Ouroboros, one of the people in the group today said Ouroboros, but it's not quite that because it doesn't start into the story again, no. if, if that makes sense. It's kind of a coda that's put on the front of the book. Mm-hmm. But there are these bookends on either side. So you've got this relationship with Peter that, gets resolved or not on page one and then reaches some sort of exclamation point at the end of the book and then you've got the whole idea of buddhism which is mirrored both in her mother's chosen religion and sort of the place that her mother goes and abandons her to and then at the end of the book there's this it mentions in the book what he is i think he's a creative writing creative creative writing teacher yeah who has this sort of national international renown and there's a conference in the bay area somewhere mm. I thought it was at stanford you think it's it was at stanford? stanford okay but anyway his house is in santa cruz and they all decamp there over the weekend for debauchery yes. and then at the exact midpoint of the book the uh welsh cinderella <laughs> branwen escapes from her evil step uh common law step common law step family <laughs> And uh, that's the pivot point at the halfway mark in yeah. the book. And either way, either side is both framed by her stay with Will's parents. The Peter saving her is maybe more like two thirds of the way. No, that's after like the crisis moment. Okay, that makes sense. So they save her and by the end she saves herself. Yeah. Right? Well, she's, she falls in love with Peter pretty early on. She recognizes something in him. And he, I guess, uses her to, what was it? What, how, how did we put it before? He, he needs to be adored. Or oh, some, yeah. I think like. he's, it's like codependency. Yeah. Like he needs to be needed. And he, he recognizes that she will always be obsessed with him as long as, you know, she needs him. But then when she finds that level of independence, it almost makes him stir crazy about it. Yeah. Like he'll throw away anything. And I think that's why Peter was put at the front of the book. I think that's why they did that little coda, as you called it, at the beginning, was because it makes it so you know there's, you want to see what happens with Peter. You want to see how they get to that point. It almost just adds this curiosity level because without that, you're just in this stuck character. But with that, you know there's something that changes. So that's a that's a good writing tip, kiddies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how you can use that, but... Uh, that's what we found in the book is, and we, we talked about this for quite a while, I think. What does that beginning actually mean? It is ambiguous. And when, when you actually look in the text, so 
basically what's happening is that, you know, will they, won't they, Bran and Peter, are they going to get together ever? He gets engaged to someone else. He lives in another city all the way across the country. Things don't really look good. She's still pining for him the whole time. Um, and will they get together? And it's really quite ambiguous because when you read the beginning of chapter one, which describes her falling down a hill, <laughs> she thinks she's broken her arm. Uh, it's the middle of the night. She's got a backpack. She's in the leaves. She sees the moonlight. She has this vision of the Isle of Avalon. Um, and then Peter shows up behind her with this dog named Rabelais. <laughs> and, um, he does all the talking. She doesn't actually say a word. But at the end of that sequence, this is what this is what the text says. The stars blurred with inexpressible happiness. Why would they do that? Is there any possible ethical justification? And so therein lies the rub. It's that word ethical, I think. Because is she elated because now she can have Peter? Or is she elated because she's free of Peter? I mean, if you look at the the entire text, I think, especially the, is it any emancipatory, which keeps coming up over and over again, and I think it's hilarious and so well done. Uh, the To me, the main plot of the book has actually is not to do with Peter. He is more of a plot aspect, and it has to do with Bran discovering herself and, it, you know, discovering what she's capable of and growing out of this life that she was in. And the plot of Peter, the subplot, I should say, of Peter is really just a device used to get us through this stuck character until she becomes unstuck. So that to me, that line at the end, you know, is it an ethical justification, justification uh, is more about her realizing, you know, for the first time that this is not ethical, that she doesn't, you know, that, that Avalon for her of Peter doesn't actually exist. I don't know if I agree with that, but that's okay. No, go, go, go for no, it. I don't know. Ethical. Why well, I, I say that again. So you, well, is there any possible ethical justification for the stars? And literally in the book, it, the stars blurred with an. So she's projecting happiness. onto the stars her oh, own yeah. emotions. Of course, yeah. yeah. But is there any possible ethical justification? So in other words, stars blurred with happiness. That's fine. That's that's poetry. That's a poetic expression, right? But does does Brand now wonder? Are they happy for me? Is you know why am I so why? Is there any possible ethical justification for the stars to blur with inexpressible happiness? And to me, that word ethical is implying more of a, is there an ethical reason for me to be with Peter? Is there an ethical reason for me to be happy about being with Peter? I thought ethical might have referred to the relationship Peter had with Yasira. Oh, and, uh, okay. Maybe. Well, they're very freshly broken up. Exactly. Yeah. Does she have a right to be happy about? Oh, about this his destruction of his guess, engagement. Right. That's, that's kind of that's better. kind of how I interpreted that's that. I love right? that. Yeah. yeah. No, that's really good. Well, yeah. suffice it to say, the opening is ambiguous, <laughs> right? There are lots of ways you can read it, and I yes. know that's done on purpose. I, of course. We know Zink And it's that on deliberately confusing so that you're sucked in because you want to know the answers to these questions. Absolutely. And yeah. so I think it takes you through a lot of exposition yes. that you wouldn't normally be able to get through right. <laughs> very easily. You wouldn't be able to lead with that normally. Right, exactly. Because mm -hmm. there is a lot of exposition. Like all of chapter one, the rest of it, 
is, is a hell of a lot of backstory. Nothing it's a lot happened. of backstory. Yeah. Is this good writing or bad writing? Well, that, dear listener, is up to you. Because <laughs> we're not here to judge. We're just here to observe. Whitney was definitely judging. <laughs> totally. <laughs> During the discussion? Yeah, of all the $10 words. Well, let's talk about the $10 let's words. Let's talk about that. As Nelson has got one hell of a vocabulary. Can we say this? <laughs> so, multiple languages of vocabulary. Oh, yes. true. Yes. True. German, yeah. French, mm-hmm. Latin. Mm-hmm. And so... Spanish. And Spanish. <laughs> and it does bother me when I... I've said this in the meeting. It bothers me when I feel like there's authorial intrusion uh, on a book. Yeah. Like, where you're... Where Even you're, with autofiction? Well, I didn't know this was autofiction. Mm. So I didn't go into this knowing this was like autobiographical, like thinly veiled memoir or autobiography. I did not know that. So when she's throwing out the $10 words, I'm like, what is that? This character, <laughs> would this character know this, this French about the wealthy elite, you know, and I, or, I, I, or homo soccer. Well, that, that is, was that actually homo soccer. <laughs> homo soccer. <laughs> yes. Although I think that was a term that, Peter used. Yeah. And that so they Jay picked, and, yeah, Jay yeah, and, and were so like, that they But she like, understood what? what it meant. Yes. No, she was making the joke about homosexuals playing soccer. Yes, homo soccer. But no, but then a paragraph later didn't she say that it means I'm fair game? <laughs> Did she? Yeah. Here, let me look it up. I remember her not understanding in the beginning. Uh, but throughout the book, even within the first chapter, when she's talking about her mother's death and the monastery. And she uses the word epiphenomenon, which I had to look up because <laughs> I've never seen that word in my life. What does it mean? A secondary effect or a byproduct that arises from, but does not casually influence a process. What the fuck? What, <laughs> what does that mean? I still don't know what Repeat that it? word means. Repeat it one more time. It says a secondary effect or byproduct that arises from, but does not casually influence a process so you're looking up epiphenomenal epiphenomenon is an epiphenomenon (laughs) that i don't know what it means well no it's a secondary (laughs) process secondary process my point being so we're apparently in the part of the book when she's talking about her childhood and her mother dies when she's 10 i think 10 years old yeah i think so 10 left her when she was five why would a 10 year old drop in a word so the first chapter, I'm like, why is this word here? Right. Who is telling the story? Right. Who's the narrator and why is she using this word? So it's not fair for a novelist to throw stuff at you without being upfront about kind of what's going on here. But yeah. I think we can infer, or at least I inferred, I don't know correctly or not, right. but that this is an older brand yes. telling the story of a younger brand because... A younger brand just wouldn't have that vocabulary. And exactly. She wouldn't, she wouldn't have read that many books because the brand in the story owned four books. Yes. Now, she had a library card when she was at school. And then Will's parents or Will's mother um, went Susan. out. Susan went out and got her a library card. Yes. Right. So she could continue to read books. And Peter gave her books. And Peter. Oh, that's right. Peter gave her books. Lots of books. Apparently. I mean, I don't know if I missed it because in a New Yorker, New York Times article I read, it was alluded to that Peter gave her lots of books and almost gave her a MFA or a master's education in literature via the books he gave her. And I was Literature like, I miss philosophy? I don't know. <laughs> there were a lot of books referenced. Yeah, in, so that's why that. I was like, I thought maybe 
Peter had given her more books than I understood while I was reading it. Maybe. But Gary, what was your indication that she was telling the story from a distance? It was the insane vocabulary right. and the insane knowledge of obscure Latin like homo soccer. Right. I did find the quote here. Peter put his arm around my shoulders to give me a squeeze and said, you really are Branwen, which is the Welsh Cinderella. Yes. Right? And it is a Cinderella story. And then the text goes on. No, it's worse than that because you're not a queen, but an outlaw. Homo soccer, condemned to a bare life under the disciplinary state of exception, dot, dot, dot. So this is something that, the, uh, that Nell Zink uses in the novel. She explains it in the novel, that when she can't follow what's going on, if she'll just... she can't just, paraphrase exactly what Peter is saying. She, she'll just put two square brackets and an ellipsis yes. to say, yeah, he's saying something highfalutin that I, that I, <laughs> I don't understand remember. what he's saying. But so when you asked... Like, like, what was my clue that this is a later telling? Yes. It's things like this. And there is, there is a point early in the book where she says, I remember this all out of order. Chapter one. Please go for it. I have trouble recounting my childhood in chronological order. It appears in fragments, like a cord and sectioned apple. Mm. Mm. So that and was the core, her... And the core is empty, right? Like yeah, yeah, the core falls through or something. Yeah, there's nothing at the heart of it. Put it back together yeah. and the interior disappears. Yes. There we go. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Zinc. Yes. Much better wording <laughs> than I. Explain the Homer soccer reference more to me. In the book, we were all thinking homosexual soccer. That's yes. what I was saying. I thought yes. it was funny. She didn't yes. get it. Is that new internet slang? But the reference <laughs> was to the Latin title of a book by Giorgio Agamben, an Italian disciple of Foucault, and it meant I was fair game. Open season on me. She compounds the knowledge of Latin with the knowledge of Giorgio Agamben, an Italian disciple of Foucault. I mean, she's just compounding her erudition and sounding less and less like an 18-year-old. Right, yes. Then, you know, could be believed, right? And Zink has to know this. Mm. she's too smart she has to know that she's not at all sounding like a kid why would she do that what's the author's (laughs) decision making like other than to be completely satirical like the rest of her novels which is the only thing i keep coming back to even like half the conversations that peter and jay and her are having will and henry and fifi fifa or whoever else Mm -hmm. you know whoever else are having like it just sounds so not in tune with what kids that age would be discussing even if they are super pretentious and intellectual on a regular basis. And it's like almost to the point where you could just like skim the words and still get what's going on in the story. And this was a comment in the group today was, who talks like this? Yeah, who talks like that? Who talks like this? So Mira brought up a really good question, which is why would Zink do that? Right. I have an idea. I'm not sure it's right. But this book takes as its underpinning some concepts of high fantasy. So there's the whole concept of Avalon, the Arthurian Avalon, um, the the Isle to the West, and then she links that in through the book as the city in Catalina, which is off the coast of L.A. I think when Will's parents rescue her from her tormentors, she arrives in a Toyota Avalon, right? And then yes. there's the Roxy Music Avalon, uh, and then the the movie that Jay, her friend, makes at uh, movie school at UCLA is called Avalon, and it stars Bran. So 
I think that there's a whole lot of high fantasy and mythology going on here and that maybe we're not supposed to take Brand's life literally. I love that. I think that's how a lot of literature likes to go. It's like when people overanalyze it into the structure of like, well, that's not how people talk or that's not how people behave or that's not how people make decisions. It's like, well, this is, it's fiction. Aaron Sorkin would answer that by, well, none of these characters are people. Yeah. They're characters. <laughs> They're characters. Yeah. And they do what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and you just absorb what it is that they do. And isn't do. that the lovely thing about art? Is it can be whatever you create it to be. <laughs> True. Absolutely. So what? So then we have to ask, what was the purpose behind it? So was she just using these $10 words and this highfalutin way of talking in order to create characters or to make a point? You know, why, why would she choose to do this outside of, you know, the fantasy realm of it? Like, you know, was it just because she wanted it to be that kind of fantastical idea or was it solving something within the problem of the novel there's all kinds of reasons why i'll just throw a few against the wall and we'll see if they stick uh one could be that she has the author nels inc has such high aspirations for the book that she wanted to throw all of her philosophy into it Mm. and to get her characters into that rather than just talking about starbucks orders or what they bought at the mall that she throws these hyper-intellectual kids into the mix so that they're immediately talking philosophy. Mm. And and what, you know, not just, oh, poor me, I'm living in a horrible situation, but what is the philosophical ramifications of submission, of trying to become an artistic being, of trying to break out of the situation we find ourselves in? And I think... That interests the author more than realism. That's, yeah, just... I don't know. I guess I think it's I see that, and I think that's almost taking it too seriously compared to what you know what I've heard of her other books. Mm. In that it's satirical, and I think I mean I mentioned this in the in the meeting that she's writing this from the perspective of somebody who who was not educated, who was not in that crowd, who wasn't in college, and I think the exaggeration of it, the hyperbole of those conversations and the way they spoke was meant to represent how confusing and how over the top it sounds to somebody who's not in those circles and just like trying to play a part of it. And it was like, you know, as a reader, you're in that field. You're, you're you're like, this is so over the top. This is such a hyperbole of how educated people speak. But you know, as a author writing to, you know, a group of people who read a lot of literature, you know, how high do you have to go to make it sound like it's over your head and that's how you put yourself as a put the reader in the perspective of the perspe- protagonist who didn't know in a satirical sense. My God, I think you've hit it. I think you've hit the nail on the head because I remember those old Peanuts cartoons where <laughs> anytime the uh, adults would talk, it wah, would want 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 want. I can't understand a word you're saying because yeah. you're an adult. And if this thing is from, if this whole thing is from Brand's perspective, and it is written in the first person mm-hmm. past tense, and it is. She's writing about her incomprehension, I guess. Of the, of the facts. You know, she, like even with the homo soccer thing, like she's still translating it to something completely different than what was originally intended. Or who knows what Peter re- originally intended. Does, like, I mean, half the time, I think by the end of the book, Peter's even contradicting himself from the beginning. He was like, I didn't know anything when I was talking about this. And now I do know, you know, like six months has passed and now he understands the world. And I think that's... You know, for one, just how, you know, 20 year old college kids sometimes talk when they learn something new. They just think they understand everything and everything they learn is fact. 
and then like six months later, they're like, I was dumb and young and now I know everything. Um, and I think, I think Brand's perspective is simply that she didn't know any of that stuff. And I think the hyperbole of it is. That is so true. Can we talk a little bit about fascism? <laughs> Can we not talk about fascism? <laughs> well, it's anti-fascist, this conversation. They, they, <laughs> the characters in this novel can't stop talking about fascism. Mm-hmm. That's fascist. fascist. That's fascist. Hollywood is fascist. Uh, that's a fascist action. That's this fascist. That fascist. I had to stop and look up fascism at one point because I was like, I thought I knew, but then they were calling things fascism that I was like, wait, am I? Weren't. I'm like, that's not. But fascist. it's a stand-in. It's just a term that they sling around. Well, that's for... when when Mira just said, you know, college kids who think they know everything, and then six months later they realize, oops, I didn't really know everything. I think fascism and the way it's used in the book is a stand-in for that. Like every everything can't be fascist, right? But if you're focused on that, well, everything is, mm-hmm. you know, even if you don't know what it means. Mm. So I thought that was a really clever way to sort of underscore young college students' ignorance of things. They're dealing with huge concepts, but they really don't know what they mean, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, or, and there's more emotion behind it than there is actually understanding or experiencing something. Right. Yeah. Well, like when you said uh, just now that Peter said, oh, yeah, well, I didn't understand what I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he's achieving that realization. Right. Like, oops. But now he thinks he knows everything. Like, he learned yeah. from his mistakes, and now, now, he's reached, now he's reached the level of all-knowing until six months from now when he realizes. Can, can we talk a little bit about how he interacts with Drew Miller? I think he was oh, committing yeah. professional suicide the yeah. way he was addressing him. I never understood why. I was like, you could just let this go. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. I, mean, I think he was are you trying talking to about a, a conversation about Buddhism when they're well, having just, a, yeah just at the when there's when the three of them are together in in Drew's in the kitchen kitchen mm-hmm. and and Peter will not let up on Drew but he, then he's looking at at Bran like with panicked eyes like he's like not aware that he's doing like he's terrified that he's doing this stuff has he been drinking is he like not, not yet. in control no, he had a little bit. The whiskey hasn't come yet. Maybe he's heady on the fact that they had just been out. <laughs> romping in the pine. <laughs> romping. <laughs> romping in Avalon. Mm. Um, and, and maybe he, but that doesn't make any sense because he seems like a pretty with it smart Pretty savvy dude. and strategic. Yeah, and he was like slitting his own throat in front of Bran. And Bran was like, why are you doing this? I guess was, I mean, unless he was trying to stand up for her, which was the only... Thing that he really I don't was think doing, so. but I don't think there. I there was no reason. There for was no it. reason for exactly. him to defend. Like her. Drew was already going. I'm like I'm. I'm quick to anger, and I've recognized this. So we're not going. I'm not going to go there. Like he was forgiving them, and Peter kept walking himself on into the blade over and over. Yeah, again. it was like he pulls out Excalibur and he slays Lancelot. It's like, oops. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to save the maiden, but <laughs> you just got in the way of my sword. This is a faculty party. All is forgiven. <laughs> I mean, you saw what happened throughout the rest of that party throughout right, the true, night. There were like true. faculty who had each other's heads and in laps and laps and and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and come hither looks and yeah. You'll have to read the book, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Peter was going to be just fine. Okay, be you're okay. sure. Mm. Yeah, I I also like that uh, tiny little note, but it gave me hope for Bran on her own. That the Italian, the sort of guest of honor, right. was immediately taken with her and said, "Oh, I'll give you the contact details for my, <laughs> for my agent." agent. <laughs> it was mentioned like twice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, okay, fine. She doesn't need no Peter. 
to me, that was why I keep going back to the fact that I don't think the plot had anything. The real plot of the story wasn't about Peter. Peter was a subplot that kept the reader going along. It was really about her finding her own two feet and her freedom and realizing she didn't need anybody to save her. And that, that was talked about at about like 70% with Susan when Susan was talking about how, you know, she's really playing up this damsel, damsel in distress position and such a victim and, you know, needs someone to come and save her. And she's acting like that. And brand justifiably is like, well, the only time my life has ever gotten better is if somebody else has stepped in, you know, and helped me, you know, essentially summarizing, yeah. um, which is very true. And I think that's part of the story. And I think that's a great thing because often in the hero's journey, like the classic hero's journey story, the hero needs to do it all themselves, but they actually end up very lonely at the end. Like that's part of the, classic hero's journey structure is that they are then on their own because they're so removed from society because of what they've learned and what they've gone through that they can't then, you know, remeld with community. And in this story, she's talking about how she actually needs people to help her and is not like the protagonist themselves realizes that before they go through the whole hero's journey, which it can't be a classic hero's journey because it was a stuck character. But. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> I thought it was interesting when she's at the party. The rest of the evening passed like a party the way I always imagined parties. Back when I first imagined parties before I had ever been to one. I ate, talked to strangers, flirted with polite men. Her confessions from charming women felt happy and pretty and alive. So contrast that to how she felt at the beginning of the book when she was afraid to speak. She was shy. Nobody could understand her. She was muttering. And she kind of comes into her own that night. Mm. I have one final question that I'm yeah. interested uh, uh-huh. from both your, and it's strictly opinion. Do you think she chooses Peter? If you, not the 12th chapter, the first chapter, mm-hmm. if you're reading chronologically the story and you get to the end, her arm's not broken and she looks up at the stars. Do you think she chooses to be with Peter? I hope no. But what do you think? I think no. I, when I read the book, Two times I thought, oh, yeah, she's ending up with Peter. And after this discussion, I'm pretty sure she doesn't. Yeah, that's how I feel. I feel like it wouldn't satisfy her character arc for her to end up with Peter. No. Although human life doesn't follow character arcs. But maybe that's why why she doesn't tell us. Maybe she's like, well, she does, but it doesn't satisfy the character arc. So we're not going to tell you that. So really, really, we're going to let it be ambiguous. You figure it out. Yeah. I don't know. I I mean, these are not real people, these characters. But <laughs> but Susan and Mark, the uh, Will's parents, yeah. where she stayed, was kind of a way station. And living with Peter could be another way station. But it's not necessarily where she, she, where she to, ends where up. Where she ends up. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Right. And so that might be a really good way to get her the hell away from Torrance. Yeah. And the threat of whatever existential threats are still waiting out there to like right. suck her back into that horrible mm. life. If she goes all the way across country, she's less likely to get sucked back into that. Mm. And and so does that mean that the two of them are going to live happily ever after? No, I don't Absolutely I don't think so. not. Even if no they way. end up together, exactly. they're going to end up in this horrible cycle. Exactly. Of, and maybe that's the source of her happiness is that yeah. realization. It's like, I've got this. I can have this. I don't need this. I can choose this. Yeah. At least, well, at least if she ends up with him after that scene, she's choosing it. She's owning it. Exactly. He's not, he like, like he had to beg for her. Yeah. 
Yeah, and she's in control. Mm. Yay. Well, Ray see, Brown. this is why I love the ambiguous ending because I do think that it kind of lets you be like, well, it's the you happy and the negative it. ending. Like you can yeah. be like, if, if you just knew they ended up together, you'd be like, oh, it's another love story. It's a happy ending. And literary people seem to hate that. Um, but if I, <laughs> I, I, I admit I don't like a tidy ending. No. I do not like a tidy ending. But leaving ending. it kind of open-ended like, like this, some, you can be like, well. Some space for it to be up to your own interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe... I mean, how well did you get to know the character? What decision would they make? Yeah, makes All leaves right. you more attached to the story. Well, thank you, Whitney Pinion. <gasps> thank, thank you, you Mira Landry. I'm Gary McBride, and this is Writers Who Read. Well, that's it for this edition of Writers Who Read. Be sure to listen to our next episode when we'll discuss Trust by Hernan Diaz. Thanks to my cohort, Whitney Pinion, Mira Landry, and the Boulder Writers Alliance, sponsors of this group since 2018. Please visit writerswhoread.com for a discussion guide of this book, as well as all the other novels we've covered. If you'd like to join us online or in person for one of our upcoming discussions, a complete list of future books and registration info is available at writerswhoread.com live. Please subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest updates and share this podcast with your fellow readers and writers. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe meeting up at a future event. Till next month, I'm Gary McBride wishing you happy reading and happy writing. Writers Who Read is a production of InRes Media.